1: Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Welcome to Killer Queens, dudes. Back with the dudes, eh? I know. You know what I figured out is I'm calling my kids dudes a lot. I'm like, hey, dudes, time to brush your teeth. Hey, dudes, get ready for bed. Like, I don't know why, but I'm just calling them dudes all the time. So it's, it's apparently a thing I'm saying now. Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. I guess we should go ahead and let you know that Apparently, I'm going to have a cold for a year and it has transformed into perhaps like a sinus infection now. Um, So sorry, this is what I sound like. Sounds great. Mm -hmm. It's better than it was. Yeah. Yeah. Not much, but better. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So before we get to the case... We just want to, of course, always let you know if you want extra episodes, you can check out our Patreon. We do three shows a week, like three episodes a week. Two of them are patron only. So if you sign up at the $10 level or higher, you get three episodes a week. If you sign up below that, you get other perks. You get ad-free episodes. Every single episode is ad-free. There's lots of reasons to join and we've got we're up to episode like 90 or 91 on the mixtape and then we've got how many doc jams now? We've done like Confession Killer, um, Who Killed Little Gregory, The Jinx, Don't F With Cats. Yes, we've done a lot. And so if you join now, you'll have all of those at your disposal, and you can just bend your little baby heart away. Exactly. We're finishing up Outcry right now, and I guess we need to pick the next one. So yes, that's going to be a toughie. Yeah. So, you know, there's reasons to join. So check it out um, if you want some extra apps. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we also have at the $10 level a Facebook group that's just for ten dollars and up so get a little more interaction there which is fun we got a little fun little fam over there yeah it's just fun it's fun yeah Yeah. so so fun all right (laughs) so we'll get into today's case this is the Love pass incident and it's requested by courtney karen thanks girl i messed that up i feel like you always say hey girl thanks so you sure do it's kind of a thing we don't, you do. I feel like it's our thing now though. People say it all the time. You you made me say it. <laughs> but it's cute. Mm-hmm. I like saying it, you know, no matter what, no matter if you're a boy or a girl or not. Like I think it's just fun. Hey girl, thanks. Yeah. No, I enjoy calling everyone a girl. It's a term of endearment. I also like to call everyone a dummy, so <sighs> interchangeable in my book. Oh, well, that makes me feel better because you call me a dummy a lot. <laughs> it's a term of endearment <laughs> but let's not forget that sloan was our researcher yes hey dummy thanks <laughs> okay that doesn't work it doesn't does not work. work no feels not good hey girl thanks okay okay so let's get into it let's get into it okay On February 14th, 1959, a hiking group of nine capable and experienced hikers was supposed to return from their 16-day hiking trip over 217 miles in the Ural Mountains, which divide Europe and Asia. This was considered one of the more difficult treks out there, but all nine hikers were absolutely more than capable of completing the trip. These are not people like you and me who... (laughs) are like, yeah, I'll go for like a little bit of a hike. And you're wearing like Toms because that's the only remotely athletic shoes you have. Like, They knew their shit. They knew (laughs) what they were doing. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm willing to bet you're the same way as I am with like a bike ride where I'm like, yeah, let's go for a bike ride. And it's just like, da da circle, 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 go back inside and take a nap. <laughs> yeah, when we went to Florida last year with um, Hunter and Lauren and them, they had bikes at our house and there was one like adult size tricycle basically. And I was going to ride that one because I'm, I'm too short for regular people bikes. Like I cannot touch the ground at all. I can't reach the ground. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'm just going to do the tricycle. But the freaking tires were flat on it. And Andrew was like, Torella, you can ride a regular bike. I was like, dude, I can't touch the ground. It makes me nervous. So they made me practice in front of them and everybody was laughing. I thought Lauren was going to die. She was laughing so hard because she can reach the ground fine. So it's like when we're stopped at a road, you know, like a stop sign or whatever, waiting for traffic to pass, you just put your one foot down. down. Yeah, but I have to hop all the way down and then get all the way back up. And I was so scared. I was so anxious the whole time. I felt like I needed like an anxiety medication because I was like, "I'm gonna fall. I'm gonna fall. I'm gonna fall. I'm gonna fall." And the whole time, I was just like, "When is this over? When is this over? When is this over?" I made it, but I was very nervous. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't like to to feel like what I'm doing is. I like to have my situation set for me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be like, "Yeah, I'll just wear." I'll wear shoes six sizes too big. It's fine. I'll make it work. Mm-hmm. Like, no, yeah. it's not going to work for me. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, these people, they knew what they were doing. They've done it before and they were ready to conquer this, like, level. What was it? Like, category three. So, apparently, it was, was like, mm-hmm. yeah, category one is the easiest and three is the hardest. So, they're, like, up for the challenge, basically. Mm-hmm. The team of nine... Well, initially, the team was 10 people, but we'll get into why it pairs down to nine but the team of nine included students former students and one prospective professor from the Ural Polytechnic Institute which uh, is referred to as UPI in Sverdlovsk now Ekaterinburg, the fourth largest city today in Russia so this was in Soviet Russia where most were members of the UPI hiking club so again very very experienced and I'm also really super trying on the pronunciation, so please give a Southern girl a little grace. (laughs) However, not one of the nine returned from the trip. When they didn't return, family, friends, and UPI thought they were just delayed. I mean, the weather's really bad. It's a long trip anyway. It wouldn't be totally unusual for them to be a little delayed. But after a few more days, there was still no word from the group and parents were starting to get more and more worried and started really harping on the UPI to take some action, like quit telling us they're just delayed, something's going on. Mm -hmm. At this time, there was no specific unit of searchers. So instead, a group of friends, fellow skiers, community members, and students and teachers made up the team of searchers that would go out and look for the missing group. The first thing they found was the collapsed and abandoned tent along with many of the team's belongings and supplies, but the hikers were still nowhere to be seen. It's so awful. It's terrifying. Oh my gosh. So, let's get into who the team was. First, the team leader was 23-year-old Igor Diatlov, which I of course went to say Igor. Yeah. Franklin Franklin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Igor. I'm sure he had a friend named Froderick Frankenstein. He was born January 13th, 1936. He was the leader of the group, like I said, and was well-respected by his fellow hikers. He joined the UPI Hiking Club during his first year and had been hiking harder and harder trails ever since. In fact, he had been hiking with the UPI hikers since he was in the seventh grade. His older brother, Vyacheslav, attended UPI and hiked with them and Igor would go with them. Igor even had a portable radio that he'd made himself. Pretty smart dude. Totally smart, especially for as young as he was. My gosh, like very, very handy, very, very technical and very mechanical. Yeah, for sure. Now in his fifth year at UPI, the 23-year-old was on track to graduate with a degree in radio engineering. He was described as someone who was thorough and friendly. Igor was also called brave, confident, experienced, and passionate. The USSR had launched Sputnik in 1957 and Igor was very good with mechanical things and engineering. According to Igor's younger sister, Tatiana, getting to UPI was challenging and competitive. It was impressive to get accepted and graduate from there. To the BBC, she said, it was so magical. Everyone believed that after he graduated, Igor would go on to cosmonautics. It was a brand new industry and he wanted to be a part of it. Imagine the war had just ended and the country was utterly devastated. Everything had to be restored. Specialists were needed. Igor and his friends wanted to study serious subjects, engineering, physics, complex technical topics. Everyone wanted to work hard for their homeland. They were real Soviet people in the best sense of the word.
0: LinkedIn jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at LinkedIn.com slash spoken. That's LinkedIn.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: These are very mature. I mean, most of the hikers are like in their early 20s. Like there was one in his 30s, but that was it. Like everybody else was in their early 20s. And this is a time when so many things that we're completely used to today were just coming on the scene. Like, you know, somebody had to be on the forefront of that and he seemed like he was like on that path. One of the um, documentaries on YouTube that we watched, it was so funny. I died whenever he said this. Did you watch this one and hear it? I did not know. He goes, at a time when space exploration was as fresh as a prince in an affluent LA neighborhood. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Love it. so perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the world was changing and they were like at the forefront of it all. Yeah. And it's just pretty amazing how mature and how much they, I don't know, they did. Yeah. Pretty incredible. In my 20s, I was just drunk as hell. Yes. Every day I came out of it. <laughs> I would like show up to work the next day still wearing the outfit I wore the day before because I hadn't gone home and I was just still drunk. <laughs> I do have a meme though to share about this. I saw it on oh gosh, 30 as fuck or something that Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Instagram account. I love that one. I know. It was so funny. I saw it this morning. It says and it says, hungover in your 20s, takes Tylenol and goes about the day. Hungover in your 30s, writes letter, dearest Penelope, I fear this may be the final time I am blessed to feel the warmth of the sun upon my breast. <laughs> I grow more weary with by the moment and prospects for survival or sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like one glass of wine and I'm dead now. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Sucks to suck. Mm-hmm. So UPI had a system where the hikers leading the hike or the hiker leading the hike, Igor in this case, would plan the hike, the route, the supplies needed, the schedule, everything and present their plan to UPI administrators who would approve or reject the plan. If the plan was approved, UPI provided a majority of the supplies. Igor had actually invented and engineered a few things that would be beneficial on a hike. He created a quote unquote stove, which was a heater, not for cooking. That would be disassembled to be carried in the hikers' packs and then used in the tent to keep the hikers warm. He also created a quote-unquote double tent, two tents sewed together that could house 12 to 14 people. One item that UPI eventually rejected for use on this hike was a two-way radio. The reasoning behind UPI rejecting the use of this tool on this hike was that it would negate the Category 3 rating. Basically, it would make the hike slightly easier. Can you imagine the outcome had they had two-way radios? That's the thing. It's one of those things that when you know this much, you're like, oh my gosh, that's the key. That's where everything went wrong. I know because it's like, okay, maybe it would have made it slightly easier in the sense that if somebody was fatally injured or would be fatally injured without help or whatever, that somebody could get to them. But... Isn't that worth it? Like, it's not like they would call down and be like, hey, can we get a helicopter up here to just bring us the rest of the way? We're not really feeling it. Like, that's not what the two-way radio is going to be used for. It's going to be used for yeah. emergencies and you should have a way to get in touch with people. Exactly. And I feel like it's not the same, obviously, but those shows like Naked and Afraid or what is that one with Bear Grylls? I know that the, Yes, had a that's lot of what I was, for not being like yeah. super. Yeah, but all of those shows... Survivor, um, gosh, all of those shows that are like you're you're thrown into a situation with basically nothing, and you have to survive these like ridiculous extreme conditions. They all have this like button that you can hit where you're like, okay, I need help here. Like this is this is taking a horrible turn. Yeah, because you're obviously not going to let somebody just starve to death or sit there with a broken leg and get attacked by animals like. You're not going to let somebody do that. Of course, they need to be able to get out of there if if an emergency happens. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. It's just so sad that that's... You very rarely see such a glaring like, oh, that's what would have been a game changer. I know. Yeah. And it's like, man, would they all still be alive? Yeah. And it wasn't that they decided not to take it. They were not allowed to. Yeah. It was rejected. No, you're not going to have this... Uh, basically like safety net exactly so in november of 1958 igor submitted the plan through the hiking club for this trip that would take place during the school's winter break which was mid-january through mid-february the hiking club submitted the plan to the upi administration and they would go on to approve the trek once igor was given permission for the hike he began putting together a team of experienced hikers and skiers to join him Troll, you want to take the first one? Yes. So first was 22-year-old Zena, Zena Kolmogorova. Kolmogorova. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Kolmogorova. Okay. Also, I saw the name Zenaida and I was like, I know exactly how to say that because of Zanny the nanny. Yeah. Yeah. But she went by Zena. It was said that they were dating at this time, but other sources say that if there were romantic feelings towards Igor, however, there's not the slightest clue in her personal letter to him that she wrote on January 16th, 1959. I don't know. They found a picture of her in his coat. Like when they found all his stuff. Really proud of the work she was doing. I don't know. I think they were dating. Zena (laughs) was born on January 12th, 1937 and was 22 years old at the time of the hike. She was majoring in radio engineering as well. Like Igor, she'd been a longtime member of the UPI Hiking Club, and she was tough. She was not one to shy away from the pain and suffering that comes with completing these intense, exhausting, physically demanding hikes. One story about her that proves her dedication to the sport and her loyalty to her teammates was the time that she was on a hike just the year before this final hike. Zena was bitten by a snake, a viper. Okay. Oh, my God. And she came... That's where I stopped. Exactly. Like, draw the line. I draw the line when I see a spider, but yeah. (laughs) She came very close to losing her life. After the bite, she was more worried about her team and apologized to them for being bitten by a snake. Yeah. Oh my goodness. She felt bad that they were going to have to pick up her slack for the rest of the hike, but she refused to give up much of it, if any, like of her load. The team helped her move along and eventually they found a family that lived in the forest. This family saved Zena's life by applying the remedies they knew about from living in the area. Zena's bite took weeks to heal and was very painful, but it did not turn her away from hiking. She was a leader and she was going to keep hiking. She was described as generous, gentle, and very popular. Again, it's like, UPI, can we look at past incidences? Had they had a two-way radio? Could they have gotten her medical Mm. help? Like, Again, it's it's not like, let's just give them a free pass. It's how about they don't die of a snake bite? How about they don't, you know, like, it's for emergencies, dude. I know, right? Yeah, they're not just doing it. It's not like they were like, I actually also am going to need a bidet. Yeah, exactly. Like that's not a necessity. I need Starbucks hand delivered to me each morning or I just simply yeah. cannot go. Exactly. I, like, yeah. it was a necessity and knowing what we know now, it's like, oh, things could have been completely different had they were allowed this two-way radio. Yeah. But the next team member to join was 21-year-old Yuri Nikolavich Doroshenko. Yuri was in his fourth year at UPI, also studying radio engineering. Man, is it, does it, the two go hand in hand, radio engineering and hiking? Apparently. Yeah, I'm seeing a trend here. <laughs> Yuri was born January 29th, 1938, and was described as strong and reliable. Yuri and Zena had previously dated, but he had broken up with her. Ouch. The BBC article mentions that Zena had written a letter to a friend that was found after her death that suggested that Zena was actually nervous about being on the hike with Yuri Doroshenko after he broke up with her. I really don't know how I'll feel. It's really hard because we are together and yet we are not together, she said. He even had met her parents. She had reportedly fallen in love with him during another hike. So Yuri had had a near-death experience on a hike where his whole team was at risk, but he was the one that stepped up and protected everyone, including Zena. On this earlier hike, Yuri and his team encountered a bear that was making a beeline toward their campsite. Oh my God. I don't know how these, and these are, I mean, at this point, I consider them to be kind of children. I don't mean any shade about that. But thinking about like being 22 and this was. Oh, yeah, for sure. Earlier than that, like (laughs) that's little babies. And he like stepped up and did. He protected everyone and like had no fear. Against a bear. bear. Yeah, those are. I mean, they're. You don't fuck with bears, man. I'm not saying that the bears that we have here in the U.S. are little like weenies. but I feel like everything in Russia is a little bit tougher. Yeah. So I'm guessing that their bears are pretty fucking tough. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. So Yuri picked up a geologist's hammer and went after the bear. And he did that whole like being bigger than your opponent. And you know, like... It was a crazy like, eyes. Say, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the bear took off and the team, the members of the team continued on their way. And Zena was like, uh, who is that? So I like what I see. Yeah. Yeah. Yuri was from a very poor family. Like the kind of poor, like coat of many colors poor, like Dolly Parton poor. Mm -hmm. He was said to have great endurance and was considered the hardest worker of the team. Members would continue to join the team from the hiking club. So next is 24-year-old Alexander Kolevatov. He was born on November 16th, 1934, and had been in the hiking club at his previous school before enrolling in UPI and joining their hiking club. He was in his fourth year at UPI as a physics and technology major. He'd previously attended another university in Moscow where he had majored in metallurgy. You gotta be kidding me. We literally, I have never heard this term Ever. Never in my entire life. And now we've got, it was mentioned in Paul Bateson, Russell Williams, Snowtown, and now this case. Like, that's insane. And I feel like probably other cases that I can't remember. Oh, for sure. But it's like the year of metallurgy. Yeah, exactly. Alexander was described as cautious, diligent, and studious, and well-liked, admired, strong, orderly, methodical, and a natural leader. The book Death of Nine said his favorite hobby was collecting and smoking antique pipes. He was considered a very beneficial member of any hiking team. The only other girl on this ill-fated hike was Yudmila Luda Dubenina. She was born on May 12, 1938 and was just 20 years old, so she was the youngest hiker, but she was still a very valued member. She was an engineering and economics major at UPI and was in her third year this hike was going to be her first category three hike. Oh. I know. I hate when I hear this kind of stuff. Yeah. Again, being a girl does not make her any less of a team member than the men. This was in the late 50s. So women were supposed to, you know, be in the kitchen, be pregnant, do everything for your husband. But mm-hmm. in Russia, that was not the case. Luda had actually been on a hike in 1957 where she had gotten shot in the leg by a hunter. It was a complete accident, oh but Luda had to be carried down from the hike on a stretcher. These people, How? like, they're like, yeah, well, I got shot last time. It's like those people who go surfing get their, like, leg chewed off by a shark and they're like, no, I'm gonna go surfing again. Like, they, it's well, like the love of the sport, you know? it. Oh yeah, carries it them, any but... of the... yeah. But uh, what I learned one important thing that I learned about surfing and sharks specifically is that sharks only bite when you touch their private parts. Oh, where'd you learn that? Fifty first states. Okay, okay, that makes sense. I will make sure that I never touch a shark's privates. That scientific documentary, Fifty First States. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <Sucks. laughs> so all the while. She apologized to the other members of her team. As soon as Luda had healed from the injury in a few months, she was back hiking. And in 1958, she would return the favor when a member of the hike was injured and Luda carried their stretcher. She was said to have remained upbeat throughout. Holy. Holy. These are like (laughs) just tough people. Yeah, they're all like rub some dirt in it, walk it off like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very like. Up and, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been shot. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you heard me. I've been shot, so gonna not go hiking ever again because it's dangerous. Like based on my experience dealing with something so great as let's say a paper cut. Yeah, I don't think that I would handle this well. <laughs> no, I don't. I also don't just don't do hiking at all. But yeah, true. Not for fun. Not for anything. She was called a merrymaker and cheerful girl who loved photography and was a member of the UPI Ice Dancing Club. Luda was also called a gifted athlete and singer. She's like a triple threat, man. Mm Mm-hmm. She was called a hard worker, reliable, independent, strong, and brave. A friend of Luda said she was so excited that she was approved to go with Dyatlov and she was kind of inspired, anxious, training, and getting ready. She was a strong person, both physically and spiritually. I would agree. Yeah. Next up is Yuri Georgi Krivon. He was born on February 7th, 1935, so he was 23 years old and had already graduated from UPI after studying construction and hydraulics. Wow. His degree in civil engineering helped him get a job as an engineer at Plant 817, and he had previously worked at Mayak Nuclear Plant. 23. A lot of life at 23. Again, I was just still probably drunk. I don't, I don't know what I was doing at 23. we <laughs> exactly. weren't working at a nuclear plant. No, not yet. Not yet. In September of 1957, Georgi was involved in the cleanup of the Kishtim disaster at Chelyabinsk 40, which was a secret nuclear facility. This is a nuclear contamination that was considered the worst nuclear disaster until Chernobyl happened. So now the ranking is one, Chernobyl, two, Fukushima, and then three, the Kishtim disaster. Georgi being involved in the cleanup of this massive disaster earned him a promotion to a supervisor at the plant. He was expected to start that position February 21st, which would be right after his hike with Igor and the group and he was on a break from work for a month at the time of the hike. Igor and Georgi had been close friends and had hiked together numerous times. He was considered the life of the party, and he was always the one to attempt to lighten the mood and make everyone laugh. He was described as a skilled artist and musician, dependable, reliable, well-liked, and well-known. Rustem Vladimirovich Slobodin? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like everything is like a question mark at the end of it. I'm so sorry. I know it's It's got to be painful to listen to. We're, we're trying here. I know. Rustem Vladimirovich Slobodin was born on January 11th, 1936. So he was also 23 years old and had already graduated from the UPI in 1958. He had received a degree in mechanical engineering and also worked at Plant 817 with Yorgi. Rustem wasn't part of the cleanup of the disaster, though. Rustem was described as very athletic. He was a long-distance runner. He was described as agile, strong, and resilient. Rustem was considered an honest and hardworking man, much like Brooks and Dine. Mm-hmm. He was also musical and played the mandolin, which he would play around the campfire with his friends. I love the mandolin. I do, too. my favorite. Ugh. Well, that and banjo. But, yeah. Well... You'll take either or, I'm sure. Yeah. With all these amazing qualities, he was still the shyest of the hikers. There I know. I can relate. Then we have Yuri Yeflimovich Yudin. He was born on July 19, 1937. He was 22 when the trip was being planned. So, and there's like a lot of Yuris, obviously, you've probably noticed, but mm. so this is Yuri Yudin. He was an engineering and economic major at UPI, just like Luda. However, he had sciatica that could sometimes flare up and cause him significant pain. And this would be the only thing that saved his life from whatever happened to his friends on this trip. Mm -hmm. Nikolai Nicholas Tybalt Brignall joined the team and was a welcome member. He was born July 5th, 1935, though this has been debated as not being his actual birth date. And at 23 years old, he was already graduated from UPI. He had earned a degree in civil engineering and gotten a job as an engineering foreman working in construction. He had lived a fairly hard life already, but he was described as cheerful, reliable, and self-confident. Nicholas was one of those guys that if he saw that a team member was struggling with their load, he would take some of the weight off of their load. He was considered extremely popular, energetic, and well-liked. It was said that he had a great sense of humor as well, and he had been a valued member of previous hikes, including many Category 3s. The last member is Simeon Sasha Alexander Zolotarev, and he went by Sasha. And his joining the team was a little controversial. He was not an original member of the hike, according to the submitted plan. He was a solid decade older than the rest of the hikers. He was born on February 2nd, 1921, and at 37 years old, Sasha had already fought in World War II, where he earned four combat medals. The Death of Nine books said that by the end of World War II, 97% of Russian males born in 1921 who served in the war perished as casualties of war. Sasha was one of the 3% who survived. That's incredible. That's amazing. Incredible. Yeah. Sasha had worked at a few schools after the war was over, both at the Moscow School of Military Engineers and Leningrad Military Engineering School. Sasha lost his job due to a reduction of students, so he went back to school. He attended the Minsk Institute of Physical Education, where he graduated in 1951. He became an athletic and hiking instructor and then applied for a job at UPI. At first, his attendance was unsettling to Igor and the other hikers. They were going on a Category 3 hike, which was, like we said, the most difficult category hike. And in this situation, everyone has to be able to trust all the members of the team and everyone must carry their own weight and then some. The rest of the team knew each other and knew they could rely on each other and that all the other members would be reliable members of the group. But throwing in a wild card and somebody older than them kind of threw off the dynamics and unsettled the team. But Sasha quickly proved that he was going to be an active and trusted member of the team. They had worried that this older man who was a professor who'd served in the military and fought in a war and had been one of the 3% of Russian men to survive that war was going to swoop in and want to be in charge. But their fears were alleviated when he didn't come in thinking that he was going to lead and showed that he respected that Igor was the leader of this hike and team. Plus, once they started getting ready, Sasha showed that he was not afraid to put in the work and be a team member to the fullest extent. So this was the team. 10 healthy, capable, strong, smart people from 20 to 37 years old all people on the team were experienced. They had definitely all almost died previously, it seems like on hikes, and they made yeah. it work. So they were excited for the challenge. like they were not uh they weren't gonna be held down by a minor setback. Yes, they were all ready for what this hike was going to throw at them. Okay, so let's talk about the trip. They started their adventure on January 23rd, 1959. And from this point on, the information that is available to the public is mostly from pictures that the hikers took and the diaries that each of them kept. And they also had a group diary that they all took turns writing in. There's also witness statements from people who saw the group during their travels to get to the actual route. But once the hike began those other people went a different path so once the hike starts it's just these team members so then we just have the diaries and the and the pictures mm-hmm. so like we said UPI provided most of the supplies and they didn't bring extras of anything so you know on a hike like this you have to carry everything in your backpack like on your back or on your person so you're not going to bring anything extra you're not going to bring anything that you don't isn't absolutely necessary. So everybody was supposed to carry their own supplies and then everybody would kind of split up the group supplies and carry them on. The snow in the mountains could get up to more than 10 feet deep. So skis were a requirement for the hike as well. They also were not supposed to bring alcohol on the hikes. It was uh, frowned upon, but Usually, people just kind of looked the other way, and the Diatlove group was no different. They brought vodka in a flask. They, you know, they're like, we're sitting around the campfire. Let's have a good time. No reason to. Well, and I'm sure that helps you stay warm. Yeah, that's that's true. It does warm you up a little bit. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a necessity, right? Warmth. I think so. <laughs> on January 23rd, the team boarded a train in Sverdlovsk. They were on this train with another group of hikers led by Yuri Blinov. So that's another Yuri, who would be able to give information about the Diatlov group in up to a certain point as well as conditions in the mountains. So this was another group from UPI, but their hike was going to take 25 days and their route was pretty much parallel to the Diatlov group. The train took them to Serov, where they arrived in the early morning hours of January 24th. And their next train was scheduled for 6.30 p.m. So they had a hell of a lot of time to kill. And they were not allowed to stay at the train station for whatever reason. So they had to go find something else to do. Unfortunately, because remember, we said Georgi was like the life of the party. Everybody's tired. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do for like the next 12 or so hours. Because they also have all of their gear that they have to carry everywhere with them. So they're not trying to, you know, go walk around the leader city. Leader, or, yeah. yeah. So Georgi had asked Luda for money to get breakfast because she was the treasurer. And she's like, no, we did not budget that. So you're gonna have to get money another way if you're gonna get money. So he started singing and being like silly. And he was trying to like, he was like trying to cheer everybody up. But I think he was also doing that like, you know, as people walk by, you can put money in a hat because I'm singing kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But a police officer came up and was like, this is a good communist town and there's no crime here and certainly no disruption of the peace. So they arrested him and they took him to the police station. (laughs) and They were like, you are absolutely not going to make noise and bother people. That is insane. (laughs) Yeah. And luckily, like, after he'd been there a couple of hours cuz you know they had like over 12 hours to kill they ended up letting him go and they were just like don't do that again basically keep quiet and we won't do anything about it so they were still able to make their second train but that definitely could have jacked up their whole schedule you could have derailed everything yeah yeah so they ended up finding a school, a school right Yeah, that was near the station. So they went there and talked to the students about hiking and the school let them hang there for a while and like set their supplies down so they didn't have to carry them everywhere. So they enjoyed doing that. And then when that was done and it was time to go back to the station, they caught their train. So then they went to Ivdel where they arrived around midnight and they were allowed to stay at this train station. So they got out their sleeping bags and everything and they just rested until the the bus got there. This bus would take them to a village called Vige, where the group would finally get a chance to sleep for real. They arrived in Vige around 2 p.m. on January 25th, and at this point, the Diatlov group and the Blinov group split. So finally, on January 26th, the Dyatlov group hopped on an open truck and left Vige. They rode in this fashion for three hours before getting to their first real destination, which was 41st. Order. This was a logging settlement and the group of hikers was given a hostel to stay during their short time here. And they just stayed one night and they watched movies and they talked and Rustem played mandolin. Zena said in her diary that most of their conversations were about love and it was just kind of carefree, you know, fun night. On January 27th, the Dyatlov group packed their shit And at about 4 p.m., they headed to a mining town called Second North. But by this time, Yuri Yudin Sciatica had flared up to an unbearable pain. And he was like, look, I'm just going to hold you guys back. There's no way I can go on this hike and like carry my own weight and help. So he decided that he would split off and go back to Sverdlovsk. He was an important member of the team, but he knew that it would just make everything harder, and he was just like, look, it's, it's going to be easier without me. Hmm. On January 28th, he headed back home after he split up his supplies with the team and had a brief talk with Igor. When he left around 10 a.m., that would be the last time any of his friends were seen alive. On January 28th, around 11.45 a.m., the group left 2nd North with one less person and began their hike. They hiked until about 4 p.m. where they took a break for lunch and the group would hike for like another hour and a half before they stopped for the night. During this first night, they were in high spirits and spent the night singing and talking around the campfire. This is also when they would do chores. So they had a rule that after they finished camping and when they were setting up for the night, they had to get all of their stuff done before anybody could actually sit around the fire. And then somebody would document the day in the group diary and then others would write in their personal journals or do whatever they wanted to do. In her personal diary, Zena wrote that Igor had been in a bad mood all evening and that she just didn't recognize it. Luda would be the one to write in the group diary that night and her entry was very detailed. She talked about being sad that Yuri didn't get to come on the hike She explained that their hike involved each person taking turns leading the group for 10 minutes and that they finally stopped for the night at 5.30 p.m. She also said that they spent the night talking about love and that someone comes up with the idea that we need a special notebook for ideas that we might come up with. Conspiring, we started going into the tent two people at a time. Luda's entry tells us that Alexander was the guy on duty for the night to keep an eye on the stove. The crew was headed toward Mount Ortorton which was a name given to the area by a native people called the Mansi. The Mansi were reindeer herders and had many signs and writing symbols on them throughout the woods. This nomadic group of people was also known to offer food and shelter to hikers. There would be theories later that the Mansi had something to do with what happened to the Dyatlov group, but... Like, everybody else was like, no, they're always super welcoming to hikers. They help them out. Like, they've never been violent towards a hiker before. Why would they all of a sudden just, like, kill nine people? It doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, it's not like, oh, my gosh, like, wrong turn or... Yeah. Yeah, the hills have eyes or whatever, like... Yeah, uh, and a lot of people thought that the names... Of the areas involved in the case, like were ominous, you know, because or Torton, where they were headed, means do not go there in Mansi. And then the area where they set up camp there last night was Mount Kolat Sayakal. And that means dead mountain. And it sounds like, okay, they went somewhere they weren't supposed to, and maybe, you know, they were killed for that or whatever. But the Mansi came up with those names just because they weren't good areas to hunt. So they were just like, don't go there. There's You're not going to find anything. Like, mm-hmm. it's just functional for them. Yeah. On January 29th, in negative 13 degrees Celsius, and that is 8.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Yuck. Which we all know Torello would be deader than a damn doornail mm-hmm. just by the temperature. Yeah. The team went about their hike in much the same way where each man, quote-unquote, took a 10-minute turn leading the group, and then the group as a whole would take short breaks after all the people had taken their turn leading. So every 70 minutes, they took a break. The hikers used the Mansi signs to lead them, and the ski trails the Mansi had created. And they only, yeah, just the men took turns being the leader. The two women did not lead. Hmm. The January 29th was also Yuri Doroshenko's 21st birthday. January 30th was, again, much more of the same, starting their hike at 9.30 a.m. with four feet deep snow and temperatures between a high of negative 13 and all the way down to negative 26, which is negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Yep. The group group makes their way higher up the mountain. They stop for lunch around 2 p.m. And by the way, lunch is dried meat, crackers, sugar, garlic, and coffee. Yep. Yes. Like, where's the Panera? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Does Panera (laughs) deliver up here, do you think? (laughs) I know. They finished their day around 5 p.m. to set up camp. According to their diaries, Luda and Nicholas had a spat about chores, and Luda ended up retreating into the tent. At some point, there is an incident where Yuri's coat and mittens were burned, and Zena wrote in her diary that she burned her mittens and Yuri's jacket at the campfire. He cursed me a lot. In her personal diary, Zena also says that they will probably build a storage area sooner rather than later. A storage site is just a shelter where hikers can put some of their supplies while they finish the upward ascent of their hike. Then they would pick it all up on the way back down. This way they weren't having to carry as much of a heavy load. Let's get to the last day. The final entry in the group diary was written on January 31st by Igor. Nothing was out of the ordinary. The weather was noted as being a bit worse wind with snow and a perfectly clear sky. The temperatures were reported as negative 18 degrees Celsius and negative 24 degrees Celsius. So this is between like negative 0.4 and negative 11.2 Fahrenheit. The team started their day around 10 a.m. and it would appear that they encountered a hunter. So the way that the group diary was written out, it's, it seems like the way that they encountered the hunter was that just they saw the footprints and they could tell that it was a hunter. It doesn't seem like they actually came into contact with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, in the diary, Igor wrote that walking was harder on this day and that visibility was very low to the point where they have to advance gropingly, quote unquote, covering only about one mile per hour. He wrote that nice. they were exhausted and that he quote unquote can't even start thinking of setting up a storage. So, despite what Zena wrote in her diary the previous day, the group at this point had not yet set up the storage site. And almost 4 p.m. the following day, Igor also may note that they were running low on firewood because all the trees were damp. On February 1st, there are no more diary entries, which means this is the end of our concrete knowledge on what the Diatlov hikers did in those snow-covered mountains. So let's get into the investigation. By February 12th, when the team hadn't returned, no one was especially worried about it, like we said earlier. Teams often get held up for one reason or another. Plus, Yuri Yudin had given UPI the message from Igor that they had already planned to be delayed until the 14th. On top of that, the Blinov group that had traveled the first leg of the journey with the Dyatlov group reported that the snow was heavy, which was supported by the news. February 14th came and went without word from the Dyatlov group. By February 17th, families had grown concerned. Luda and Alexander's parents called UPI, but they were reassured by UPI that everything was fine. Delays are normal. In fact, Lev Semyonovich Gordo, the head of the sports club at UPI, lied to the parents telling them that they had received a telegram from the group. That's inappropriate. So inappropriate. Like, just to get people off your back, like, dude, they're going to know this that you're This reminds me of the Millbrook twins. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we found just them. Just because you don't want to, like, file the paperwork and deal with all that? Like, that's fucking absolutely that's ridiculous. That's not okay. No. no. Yeah. Ugh. But a few more days would pass and there would still be no sign or word from the hiker, so the families decided that they were done waiting. After a February 20th meeting uh, with the Sverdlovsk City Committee and UPI administrators, the committee and administrators decided it was time to send out searchers to attempt to locate the missing hikers. Colonel Georgi Semyonovich Ortyakov was the head of the military department of UPI, and he took the lead in creating the search and rescue. According to the Death of Nine book, At this time, there were no formal search parties. And because of this, a search party consisted of anyone willing and able. In this case, it was students, instructors, and experienced winter outdoorsmen. We would not make the cut. (laughs) (laughs) No, it'd be like, um, indoor girls who don't own any tennis shoes, not welcome. Well, now hang on, that's not very fair. Can the tennis shoes be four inch platforms? No. Okay, well, I'm out. Yeah, And to make up the budget, businesses and universities would donate to the search effort. With the search effort and community involvement, a plane was sent on the 21st to fly over the area and look for signs of the Dyatlov group. Unfortunately, Joey wasn't part of the group (laughs) and didn't spell out play in sticks, which would have been seen from the
0: the airplane that
1: said help. Yeah. Yeah. So they couldn't see anything. No, no uh, help sign or whatever. Yeah. It would be another three days before they found the Diatlov Group's abandoned campsite on the Kolat Siakal Slope. The tent had partially collapsed and there was some snow on top of it. Outside the tent was a pair of skis and an ice axe along with a flashlight laying on top of the crumpled tent. The searchers tried the flashlight and it still worked. Lots of other little things were found outside the tent and strewn about the snow. Things like socks, hats, loose change, etc. Also left behind was Igor's coat with a pocket knife and a picture of Zina in the pockets. See? I'm guessing it didn't, yeah. I'm guessing it didn't get so warm that he didn't need his coat, though. Right, yeah. Also near the tent and more unsettling than what was left behind were the footprints in the snow leading away from the tent. So the prints were described as shallow indents that would lead one to believe that the group left calmly since they were neat. The disturbing part about this is that the footprints appeared to have been made by people without shoes on. And like you said, it did not get so warm that they were like, let's just go barefoot. Either socked or bare feet would make these prints. And not only did the prints look like bare feet in shape, The prints weren't indentions anymore as you would expect, but they were more like columns. And you kind of have to see the picture to understand this, but apparently what they're saying is if you step in the snow barefoot or with just socks, the warmth from your feet would melt the snow, which then refreezes into ice. So then the snow around the ice gets blown away and it just leaves like the ice that you've stepped down in, you know, Mm -hmm. So it's like columns of ice left everywhere. So that's a big indicator that they definitely didn't have shoes on either. It was also noted that there were marks that looked like handprints and drag marks with the footprints. The prints went on for about 30 feet and then disappeared. The searchers carefully opened the tent half, prepared to find at least a few bodies. There were none, but there were other things that alarmed the search team. Left behind in the tent was food, a pile of boots, blankets, backpacks, diaries, buckets, a metal box, four cameras, a flask of vodka, a saw, a flashlight, three axes, a knife, two kettles, a first aid kit, three compasses, a pocket watch, and a partridge and a of tree. Like, like, there's so much. Outside the tent, the searchers found socks and slippers wrapped in what turned out to be Igor's checkered shirt, and they also found a place where someone had peed in the snow. It even appeared as though the group had been in the middle of dinner when whatever caused them to abandon the tent had happened. There was sallow cut up on a plate, which is white pork fat that at the time was a delicacy and provided a significant amount of calories for hikers. Uh, There was bread, biscuit, sugar, and a cup of cocoa all laid out on the floor, and the stove for heating the tent was said to be full of kindling that had not yet been burned. A searcher said most of the meat on the plate was sliced up as if they were getting ready to have supper or something and just didn't have time. The searchers read the diaries in an attempt to glean information about the Diatlov group's trip. They opened the metal box and found Igor's passport, the group's return train tickets, and 700 rubles, which if you do like conversion to U.S. dollars and then inflation for today, that's like about $1,500. With all the money and supplies left behind, it was clear that the Dyatlov group had not been attacked by criminals looking for money. It's also important to know that the things inside the now flat tent such as crackers and other delicate items were not crushed or broken at all. So that kind of rules out the avalanche possibility. Continuing to search the tent did not alleviate fears. The search team also found a bamboo ski pole that had been cut up. The top was off and a notch was carved in the wood of the pole. And that's significant because like we said, the team only brought exactly what was needed. They did not have anything extra. And there were two poles for each hiker. So if one is cut up, then somebody doesn't have what they need. They don't have enough. Mm -hmm. There were so many pieces of clothing and protective gear that had been left behind that it made searchers worried about the hikers. I mean, it basically was all of their clothes, all of their shoes, everything. And, you know, again, it is so cold out there. Nobody in their right mind or if you're able to take everything with you, you're not going to walk out basically in your like underwear, socks or barefoot, you know, like Mm -mm. there's something going on, obviously. Then once the canvas of the tent had been stretched out, the searchers found that there were two small cuts and then a long cut in the side of the tent, which they would later determine that it had been cut from the inside. Since it was 1959, forensics and procedure were more like suggestions than rules. So the search team that found the campsite basically just plowed through all the things left there and emptied the backpacks and threw everything into one big pile that it, that was packed up and taken to Ibdell. Once everything was in Ibdel, Yuri Yudin had the unfortunate job of identifying all the things and their original owner, but there were some items that he was like, mm, no, I don't think these belong to anybody. I didn't see them with anybody. So strange. It, yeah, really strange. At this point, though, no one is thinking they're going to find the hikers dead, and they especially aren't thinking that if they did find them dead, that there might be concerns about how they died. The priority to collect forensic evidence was low, plus it was the 50s. And because of this, things were overlooked and not documented. There are only pictures of one side of the tent, so we don't know if there were cuts on both sides. The searchers would also end up using the group's cameras they found in the tent to take pictures during the search. And it was determined by Sverdlovsk Research Crime Lab that the seamstress in Ibdell had been correct and the tent had been cut from the inside out. It had not been cut torn open or even started with a knife and then ripped. It had been fully cut all the way down the side of the tent. It was also noted that there were more small knife scrapes along the inside of the tent that led the investigators to conclude that they hadn't made the cut in the spur of the moment. That They'd made some preliminary cuts before making the main one. The fact that they would cut open their tent concerned everyone. Like, you know, in that, that's a harsh environment. It's absolutely frigid. Your tent is your shelter. It's your protection. It's what essentially keeps you alive. But Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, they decided to slice down the side of the tent instead of going out of the front or the back. So, I mean, that's a huge question. What would have made them think that that was the best course of action? Because now you've got no tent for the rest of your trip if you're trying to make it somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, that was your only shot. Yeah. Or something like that. With the help of the Mansi trackers, the search team located a storage site that belonged to the Diatlov group. It appeared that the group had created the site before whatever had happened happened, but they had never come back to the spot to access any of the supplies. More confusing, though, was the fact that there was a pair of skis that were crisscrossed marking the site. Again, it's confusing because the group didn't have a spare set of skis so whoever would have left their skis would not have been able to continue skiing with the group and would also have had difficulty just walking around the campsite into and from the storage site like you know that snow is so deep you've got to have the skis and again this person has nothing exactly then on february 27th the search team found the first two missing hikers and we're going to cliffhanger I know. (laughs) What a bitch move we did. I know, but here's the thing. If you can't wait and you want to hear the rest of this right meow, Mm -hmm. if you're on the Patreon, you got it, girl. You got it. It's there. Yes. And if you don't want it right now and you can wait if you have any kind of self-control, which we don't, uh, don't. that's great. And we're fine with that. Totally. Yeah, wait until next week. You can wait until... Yeah, it's fine. No probs. So, those are your options, but we hope to catch you on the next episode where we conclude the Diot Love Pass. Yes. We love you guys. Bye. Bye. So, before we go, we just wanted to say a little hey girl thanks. See, I did it. To, tonight, to too. some of our new patrons. Thank you so much Amy R., Kaylin G., Haley R., Avin H., Laylee S Alyssa J Elise G Kimberly R Laura G Amy C Laurie K Leah H Lauren L Megan Y Amanda B Tiffany M Ayla H Bailey C Victoria Shannon Brooke Kim R Melissa R Evan R Brittany P, Summer A, Tamara O, Claire N, Jenna, Chloe C, Laura A, Cindy S, Lucy H, Colleen U, Raylene R, Karen B, Tilly A, hey girl, hey girl. Amy K. Hey, girl. Athena D. Thanks, guys, so much. Thank you, guys. We love you guys. Thank you, guys. We love you. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye.